What's good, everybody? How you doing? Once again, back at it. It is the Heal and Face podcast on Facebook Live here, courtesy of Heal Turn Wrestling. It's your boy, Steve C. Steve Castellanovo here. We're going to talk a lot of wrestling, obviously, but um, there's a whole lot of shaking up. Two belts in two different world-renowned organizations, plus did Fighter Fest carry its momentum from last week into this week and win the summer edition of the Wednesday Night War. Tune in to find out. And of course, you ever want to get at me and you ever want to talk to me about things, not just during the show, you can always follow me on Twitter at Mr. Castellanovo. Uh, I may also be moving on to other social platforms as well. So you can hit me up on Twitter for now, but you might be able to check me out at other places as well. And I'm getting really excited about that. The show is growing in leaps and bounds. It's growing every day, and it's because of you guys. So I'm really psyched to hear what you guys have to say about the big things that are going on in the world of professional wrestling today. And of course, though, if you always want to get a hold of me, not just on my personal Twitter handle, but you can get a hold of me. You can like the show. You can share it with your friends, and please do. If you're new to the show, thanks for tuning in. You can comment and subscribe. I've been getting people to notice the show from all different parts of the world, from Africa, from Asia, from Australia. Shout out to the fans down under and everywhere around the world. Thanks for tuning in. So if you like the show, share it. And even if you stumble upon me by a complete accident, but you know somebody who's a wrestling fan or you know somebody who is an indie wrestler who would like to be part of the show, definitely share the show with them. Comment below, subscribe, do all the things. And of course, you should also follow the mothership, so to speak. Go to all of our social medias at Heel Turn Wrestling. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at HT Wrestling 316. That's HT Wrestling 316. Six. Well, the two sweets heard around the world. Evil turned on Naito after winning the New Japan Cup. And he was joined in the ring by Dick Togo during his match with Naito at New Japan's Dominion show. Evil. And as I predicted three years ago, I'm gonna, not saying I'm patting myself on the back. Not saying I'm blowing my own horn, but as Arn Anderson said, toot, toot. There is a picture of Evil becoming champ champ, defeating his former friend and Los Ingonables de Japón teammate, Naito, for both the Intercontinental and the IWGP Heavyweight Championship belt. And as I said, he was joined in the ring by Dick Togo, who came in and came in as a mask. As soon as he won, Bullet Club comes out. Well, it was a big shocker, to say the least. Although, I'm not so shocked that Evil won. I'm kind of shocked he went to Bullet Club. And there's a lot of speculation if he's going to stop being evil, or if he'll just be known as his real name, or whatever. Uh, or what the direction is. A lot of people say that the Gravedigger gimmick is getting old and stale and needed uh, something polished up a little bit. 
if you want to liken this possibly to The Undertaker turning into the American Badass, possibly. You could see that. I could see that. But I love it. I dig it. I've been rooting for evil for a very long time. And I am so psyched to see that he finally got his opportunity to be on top of New Japan. So good for evil. He's going to be a star. And he's going to be a star heel. And the most important thing is he is going to bring New Japan back. And everybody's saying that they're on their way. They're coming back. I've even seen on New Japan's websites that they're promoting the New Japan is back t-shirt in English. Bullet Club has said before they need to get back to their roots. And this is one way to do it. Now, here's a question. Do they give evil the faction? I know there was some talk that I guess Zack Sabre Jr. or other people were going to try to take uh, the full reins of Bullet Club. I know there was talk, I guess, with Kenta and with other people. But giving it to evil, making evil the ace of Bullet Club, the new Bullet Club, the Bullet Club is back Bullet Club, and giving him both belts restores legitimacy to one of the most feared wrestling factions in the entire world. So I dig it. I love it. It's going to elevate evil. It's going to elevate Bullet Club. It's going to elevate New Japan. They're going to have a supercharged monster heel that's going to be unstoppable and no one will be able to take the belt from. And they're going to have great runs against all the other. They can throw everybody at them. They could throw Okada at Evil. They could throw uh, Tanahashi at Evil. They could throw Takahashi at Evil. They could throw Naito on a revenge tour against Evil. It's so many possibilities now that they can have. They have so much flexibility to have babyface after babyface chase Evil and chase Bullet Club. And I can't wait. I cannot wait. I am so psyched to see that. So next matt riddle took to twitter this week which i think is interesting that he took to twitter because most of the time when you have a delicate situation unless you're some random semi-retired southern former promoter who gets on social media and has made tons of money in a third revival of his career by criticizing the wrestling business unless you're that guy it's really dubious whether or not you should take to twitter about anything that's going on in your personal life yet matt riddle had the courage to do it so i have a take on it and i'll get to it in just a second matt riddle responded to the accusations by his accuser on twitter claims he was never deceitful about his affair with his accuser now i know i kind of worded that awkwardly so i want to kind of walk through it a little bit affairs by their nature yes are secretive are deceitful I understand. And I went back and forth with someone on Twitter about this. The whole impetus for the speaking out movement is to call out pro wrestlers who are either using their positions of power to open the gate for female wrestlers or really any wrestler or using their position of status to encourage bad behavior like abusing fans, sexually assaulting fans sexually assaulting each other, etc., etc. And the speaking out movement is important and it shouldn't go away until those who have committed 
the crimes they've committed without a shadow of a doubt are brought to justice. But as I also said in past weeks, that we should be very careful and still remember that we live in a judicial system where you are still innocent until proven guilty. So for Matt Riddle to again have to address these issues that he keeps addressing that just won't go away is something that he shouldn't really have to do. And I'm curious as to after he has taken all the steps and the appropriate measures with the WWE about this whole situation, he must have gotten some clearance to go ahead and say something. Lawyers just don't let their clients just say random things, especially on social media, even if they're defending themselves and even if they're 100% right, because perception is reality, correct? And people on social media are going to take whatever is on there, right or wrong, and twist it however they want. So, why does Matt Riddle feel like he has the confidence to denounce his past again? It's because he's on the right side of this. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but he's on the right side of this. He's done everything appropriate that he's had to do in order to clear his name and keep himself employed in the WWE. And it isn't just for self-preservation of his job either. In a past life, I worked with sexual offenders. I worked with young adults who were in prison for sexual offense. And I'm not an expert. I don't claim to be. However, I do have a great deal of insight and knowledge because I've worked with that population. And that population of offenders has to fall under certain amounts of scrutiny. And there are personality checklists that are related to sexual offenders. Sexual offenders don't have any remorse or any empathy toward their victims. Their victims are always a thing or they've disassociated the personality of that person and they just use them for what they are. Sexual offenders also never admit that they were wrong that maybe that it was because they were offended, and that's legit. I'm not discounting that. Sexual offense is a cycle. If you get offended, you're more than likely to offend someone if you were a victim yourself. So that part of it's true. The part that sexual offenders don't get is, is that they don't own any of their mistakes. They say they're not at fault, that they were just put in a bad situation or... or they were stalked, which brings me to the other personality trait of a sexual predator, which is they turn the tides on the victim. They claim that they're the victim themselves, that they have somehow been wronged, that it's the other person's fault, blah, 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 and it wasn't them. Well, you can go back, you can go to Matt Riddle's Twitter handle, and you can listen to the whole video, listen to him. He felt... Ashamed and embarrassed that he was cheating on his wife. As soon as he got to the WWE, he let them know. He's changed his phone number two or three times. He's changed his wife's phone number two or three times. Because guys have stooged him off, his phone number anyway, and his wife's phone number, off to this woman who is making all these accusations. He does feel sad and regrets having an affair and he does regret getting romantically involved with this woman and he doesn't want to see anything bad really happen to her he just wants her to stop accusing him of something that he didn't do which is only fair 
Yes, he entered the relationship willingly. He allowed her to do those things to her. But in the grand scheme of things, he called it off. He didn't want things to go too far and he wasn't going to break up with his wife. He wasn't going to ruin his marriage or ruin his relationship with this affair. So he let it all out there. He put it all out there for everybody. He told his wife and family. He's been very upfront about everything. And sexual predators are not upfront. Sexual offenders don't tell their friends at work, don't tell their bosses, don't make it public or everything. So is it possible that Matt Riddle could have used some power and influence to get some favors? I don't know. But to the level that this accusation is coming and the fact that Matt Riddle felt confident enough to go on Twitter seems like it's kind of enough for me. So let's focus on the real victims of the speaking out movement. Let's focus on the women who were promised this, that, and the other thing in the wrestling business by some of the male wrestlers, and then in turn were sexually assaulted and victimized. So let's just keep the focus on where it needs to be, and let's not keep the focus on someone who honestly has had an affair and regrets it still to this day. Obviously it haunts him, he still has to talk about it. And he has to fully disclose it to uh, the WWE. So, now I posed a question last week. Will Fighter Fest maintain the momentum from week one, which critically they were clearly better than NXT Great American Bash last week? I asked if they would uh, continue the momentum. I'm not sure, but we'll see. All I know is that Great American Bash was better this week than it was last week. That's not saying a whole lot. It was still not as amazing as I would have hoped it would have been. I would have thought that maybe, well, since it already is kind of pre-taped anyway, it's hard to tell whether or not they went back and punched some things up and made some things better. But I would at least like to think that they would have seen what they did last week and tried to improve it. Now, yes, I know if you want to talk ratings, NXT did beat WWE in the ratings, and I don't know if it's because of the spoilers were stooged off or not. fact remains that people did tune in this week more than they did for AEW. Honestly, though, I don't just look at the numbers. I look at it critically as well. What was the better show? What had the more eye-popping matches? What had the more interesting storylines? What had the better characters? What had the better... Uh, in-ring performances when it came time to actually have the match. I am going to reserve judgment until I'm done talking about uh, AEW. But what I do want to say is, again, Great American Bash was better than it was last week, if you could imagine. And let's get into the other champ-champ situation. Before we do that, we had a continuation over from last week, Candice LeRae and Mia Yim in a street fight. Now, when you think of Street Fighter, Candice LeRae does not come to mind at all. And yet, somehow, she found a way to get the victory. Uh, this was a pretty hard-hitting match. There were a lot of bad bumps, like on the table and whatnot. At some point, Candice was very close to sliding off the table and whacking the back of her head against a big oak door, so. It was pretty hard-hitting, but because Candice is the big heel, that's where the focus is going to be, and Candice is going to somehow be set up to win the NXT belt, or at least compete for it as a heel. She had to get the win over Mia Yim, which 
was not believable to me. And I love Candice LeRae. I like her style. I, I think, you know, some of her work in the ring is a little suspect at times, but I dig her a lot. But two things that I don't get about her. One, I can't believe her to be a credible heel, but at the same time, I, two, I also just don't buy her as a street fighter. And the fact that Mia Yim lost to someone who is about half her size and not as what you would say technically trained in martial arts and all that to take the win is just a little unbelievable so i give that match a wash i'm not really that interested in the outcome i'm not interested in seeing heel candace lee and i'm definitely not interested in seeing heel candace lee win in a street fight but okay it happened so we just move on the next match was actually very nice and is a nice surprise, and I hope this goes somewhere. But Bronson Reed was able to redeem his loss against Killer Cross by beating Tony Nese. Tony Nese, poor guy, there's not a whole lot to do with him. He's kind of sputtering right now, seeing as though he has already been cruiserweight champ a couple of times, and he's a prominent figure on 205 Live. And they like him because of his athleticism and he's everything that WWE wants. Unfortunately, he was kind of in an extended squash with Bronson Reed. And Big Thick Boy did some things and messed him up. Very athletic match for both of those guys. Seeing Bronson Reed coming off the top rope in a splash is probably life-defining. Probably your light flashes through your head when it happens. And you just pray to your maker that you don't join them. Be that as it may, it was a good match, fun match, solid match for Bronson Reed. I hope there's big things to come, and then he just doesn't get buried as a big dude mid-carter like other big dudes who are currently in NXT. So, good for him. Moving on to the next match, which this was the match that they gave us. And I commented last week that with Evolve finally selling to WWE... I could very well see the next kind of relaunch, Evolve pay-per-view. Definitely, these two guys could be a co-main event for it. And they might have actually teased it here anyway. This was a really nice match between Gargano and Forb Scott. Just, uh, you know, a lot of high-flying. It was a little stiffer than I would imagine between the two. They built up a lot of heat last week when Swerve intervened on Mia Yim's part when Candice was attacking her backstage. So that came together pretty well, which carried over into this match. And it was a highly entertaining match. It was probably the best, or one of the best matches of the night. So good for these guys. I hope they kind of continue this feud. This is a nice avenue to see both of them go. And again, like I said, if Evolve continues to exist, I would not be surprised if these guys shift over toward Evolve. Another surprisingly good match was the next one, was Legando de Fantasma beating Drake Maverick and Brizongo. Brizongo came to Drake Maverick's defense when he was getting stomped down by Legado del Fantasma. And it seemed like it was a really good fit. Rockstar versus two dancer pretty boys. Sure, why not? I was kind of hyped for this because Drake Maverick came with his intensity came with his fire and at some point he got with in the ring with Santos and 
just kind of unloaded and leashed on him. Eventually, it wasn't to be, and Santos Escobar hit him with the Phantom Driver. I would like to see this continue as a feud as well. I would like to see something where Brazongo versus Mendoza, and I don't know, sorry, I'm blanking. I want to call him DJZ. I want to call him Shima Zion, uh, but he's not. Um, and anyway, I'd like to see them go at it as a tag team, be a little feud for a while. And I also would like to see them mixed up in the same way that the Monday Night Messiah and his disciples mix it up with uh, the other guys too, with anybody else too. I want to see them be each other's final bosses. And I also want to see all this kind of weave and go back and forth and culminate with Drake Maverick winning the Cruiserweight belt at some point. So I hope this happens. It was fun. It was not anything to necessarily write home about. There was some really good moves in this match, but Drake Maverick came out on the short end of the stick this match. And of course they played up Drake Maverick neck issues, his sprained neck, and that's kind of how they sold and Drake sold it too. Nice match, fun match, should hopefully set some things up for the future. This one was interesting. Speaking of future, I don't know if this is karma or I don't know if they were just waiting for this to happen. But Mercedes Martinez made her re-debut in NXT. And interestingly enough, it's not unlike the Great American Bash to do this, to bring in somebody or bring back somebody big and have them have a good match. I was kind of expecting this to be a squash because they haven't really done a whole lot with Santana Garrett. And both women are getting up there in age. And if this is Mar Mercedes Martinez's time, as she has been saying lately in her promos, then it's her time. She's not here to play around. She's not here to do anything but win. So maybe this is their backhanded way of giving us a version of Shayna Baszler. I don't know. The match was pretty good in and of itself. They know that Santana Garrett is a good hand and they know that she'll do what she needs to do in order for it to be a good match. It was a little wobbly at times. I think it's because they just don't have the chemistry together or it's probably been a while since they were both fighting on the independent scene against each other. So I don't know. Fine. It was, uh, it wasn't, it was, it was just how a match should be. If you want to introduce a heel AEW take note if you want to introduce a heel or reintroduce a heel to a mainstream market you've got to make both her and her opponent look credible at the same time which is again probably why they went with Santana Garrett you know she's a veteran she knows what she's doing even though there was again a couple of walkie times during the match especially with some exchanges and some going up against the rope and whatnot. But other than that, it was an okay match, and it was just a way for uh, Mercedes to establish herself as a main heel with her heel tactics, with her not-giving-a-crap tactics. Uh, there, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was even like a face wash with a boot a couple of times against Santana Garrett. And, of course, Garrett's been working tweener anyway. She'll come out, depending on who she's wrestling, as either the healer uh, or the face Shout out to the show, Heel and Face. But uh, this match was all right. It was just a way, again, to establish that Mercedes Martinez is a, a new, huge heel that people need to deal with. And I don't know if she's going to be 
taking over the Shayna Baszler spot because nobody knows what's going to happen with Shayna Baszler now. But if she takes over the Shayna Baszler spot of the badass female heel in the women's division, I'm all for it. So good for her. Besides, she deserves it. If anything else, this is probably Martinez's final run at a major wrestling federation, major promotion. There was rumors when she was signed anyway that she would just become a trainer. So hopefully this is her time. That was a nice super kick. Straight in the mush, as Joey Styles would say. Enjoyable match. Could have been a little better, but just to establish Martinez as the big heel. And it was also the palate cleanser for the final match of the night, which was the champ-champ match, the dual-champ winner-take-all match between North American champion Keith Lee and NXT champion Adam Cole, Bay, Bay. Well, now, some of the matches this night were better. Some of them were just mediocre. But this match was fun to watch. And there were a couple of callback spots that were, to me, kind of okay. Like, Keith Lee actually went through the plate last once, so that was kind of a, or plexiglass, whatever you call it. So that was kind of an okay, you know, all right, a callback to... It's his turn to eat the plexiglass. Now he's been putting all the heel challengers through it. So there was that. Keith Lee coming with the athleticism. And then my comment is, if this is the same, I guess, mistake that they initially made with The Undertaker, but I think they've course corrected it now and said, oh, okay, we see it. We get it now. Because if you remember in The Last Ride, Chapter 4, The Undertaker talked about how he had to campaign with Vince after probably 93, 94, when all the big guys that were getting fed to him were kind of busts, that he was begging to work with some of the younger, smaller guys, like Bret Hart, like Shawn Michaels. And then he promised Vince that he could put on good matches with him. And, of course, Vince was kind of stubborn. Hey, well, okay, pal, maybe, maybe not. And he didn't see it happen. But as it turned out, The Undertaker could athletically match up with Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart and Davey Boy Smith. And he could out-wrestle those guys, too. It always made sense when fighting Shawn Michaels. It always made sense when fighting Bret Hart. It always made sense when fighting, you know, Mr. Perfect because he was athletic enough to match him and no one believed him until he showed it. Well, I think they took that lesson and decided that they were not going to repeat that same mistake with another extraordinarily athletic big man in Keith Lee. Now you're seeing Keith Lee do the things that Keith Lee do. Yes, he had a great match against Dominic Dijakovic. And yes, he did have a great match against Damian Priest. It was really well done on both ends. And their triple threat match was really good and all that. But Keith Lee does just as well fighting big men as he does fighting athletic small guys. It seems as though athletic small guys are the predominance of NXT right now. There really isn't a choice. You don't have anybody else to go to. So if you don't, go to them. The match was very well done as far as pacing, stretching out, athleticism, callbacks, big moves. Keith Lee pulled out the big moves when he needed to, like the, the uh, spirit bomb, I think, from the second rope or from the top rope to kind of obliterate Adam Cole. The other Keith Lee finishing move, Big Bang Catastrophe, was just, like, brutal... Adam Cole is so good at 
selling that kind of stuff, way more athletic than I ever gave him credit for. Even 10 years ago when I was like, Adam Cole and ROH, okay, and then that worked. But Adam Cole also proved that he is, in fact, one of the best professional wrestlers in the world. He's one of those rare talents that doesn't need a belt to prove that he is the best in the world. He just is. But giving him a belt is nice. Keith Lee pulled off moonsaults, which amazed my son, by the way. My son was just walking by when it happened, when I was watching it. And he was amazed that a big dude could do a backflip, daddy, like he did. I said, yep. There were many opportunities for Cole to escape. Cole even put his pointer finger on the bottom rope. A lot of what was going on. There weren't too many heel tactics involved. I like that. I like it wasn't so much heelishness. It was more relying on Adam Cole to say, okay, I'm the best. There's no way you can beat me. I'm going to play it straight and you still can't beat me. That's the way it was framed. Thank goodness there was no run-ins by Bobby Fish or no run-ins by... Uh, Roderick Strong, it was just a one-on-one. -on -one. I guess they were even banned to backstage. I'm not 100% sure, but it was just a great match between uh, both of these guys. It didn't light the world on fire, but certainly didn't suck, and it ultimately gave Keith Lee the win. And now, Keith Lee is both the NXT North American Champion and new... WWE NXT Champion. So congratulations to Keith Lee. Congratulations to Adam Cole. Who knows what's next for Adam Cole. There is, again, more speculation that Cole will be moving on to probably SmackDown, the blue brand, because it is more of the athletic side. I'm okay with him versus AJ Styles. But what's next for Keith Lee now? Interestingly enough, as soon as we saw that, we see the camera go close up on Karrion Cross and Scarlett, and they were watching. And then later on that night, Karrion Cross tweeted out a picture of him touching his watch, and it said "tick tick," hourglasses. Karrion Cross setting his sights on the dual champ of NXT. Is Karrion Cross even shooting past his capability? Because he's also mentioned apparently in another interview that he'd like to have a match against Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania. Now, it's very rare that someone goes from just signed to just getting on NXT to having a wrestling match with Brock Lesnar. But maybe Karrion Cross feels like that he's even getting up there in his time as a professional wrestler and he needs to capitalize on things. But enough about Karrion Cross. We do know that's probably going to be the next step between him and Keith Lee, and I'm for that. But right now, we could just bask in the glory of a dual champ. That's what happened on NXT Great American Bash. So it was better all around than the week before, but I think some of the mediocre matches, again, they kind of put together, like the street fight, just to kind of fill time and justify some things, parts of the storylines. I could have done without some of those matches. I could have needed maybe a rubber match between O'Neal Lorcan and uh, Tommy Thatcher. That would have been nice to see again. I don't know if you want to waste that two weeks in a row, but I definitely want to see something. I would have loved to see Tommy Thatcher versus maybe Paul Birch. Love to see 
other wrestlers probably get a little bit of a shine on the Great American Bash, but it wasn't that terrible. It wasn't actually that bad, so I am all for it. But was it better than Fighter Fest? Let's find out. This week's Fighter Fest overall was a little flatter, and I was a little disappointed that they didn't carry as much of the momentum as they have in the past, or as I expected them to carry into this match into this show. A lot of weird things going on. I think Taz was trolling Bubba Ray and all the critics from last week, but we'll get to that. So the first match was a match that I was kind of looking forward to, but unfortunately it petered out. It didn't live up to the hype and sadly it kind of blew off some of the momentum that I was hoping that it would carry over from week one started off with another match with Private Party, which for right now you can't get enough of them. Mark Quinn and Isaiah Cassidy accompanied by Matt Hardy. And they were challenging the tag team of Omega and Paige for the belts. So hey, what a way to kick off Firefest 2, right? You've got a tag championship match, bam, right off the bat. This match could have been a lot better, and unfortunately it wasn't. If NXT Great American Bash Night 2 started off poorly. This certainly didn't do itself any service for their match, or for their night either. Um, I think maybe they left a little bit, the private party did, in the ring last week, and it was kind of flat versus the champs, and I think maybe even Paige and Omega left a little bit on the mat the week before, and I get it. It was taped. A lot of these guys are doing double duty. However, you got to keep the energy up, especially if you're trying to convince people that this is a second show of a second night. And there was a lot of sloppiness. I was taken out by a lot of the moves. For example, that double Spanish fly on Omega honestly looked like a clothesline that Omega was giving to both of them. There were some minor issues all against the ropes and just some timing issues that didn't look good. It looked kind of sloppy. It looked like that nobody really knew what they were doing. There were some good counters, though. Gwen countered a Taro Crush from Kenny, so that was pretty athletic. I had to rely on their athleticism to carry him through the match. Hangman powerbomb Mark Gwen into the barricade, into the crowd, which was kind of dumb. And then Isaiah follows it up with a second rope moonsault into the crowd. If you're in the crowd, and you're gonna be that close, and you're gonna take the bump, look like you're taking the bump. The guy in the Hawaiian shirt with the long hair, who looks like a Joey Janela reject, the one sitting right next to him, he looked like he just got up out of bed. He was not selling at all, it made it look dumb. The other two guys were kind of selling. The, the guy that I'm talking about in the blue and pink Hawaiian shirt didn't even look like it phased him at all. Come on, you're on national television making this thing try to look legit, and you look like you just woke up after you get clocked in the face by a wrestler? Come on now, dude. At least emote a little bit. At least sell a little bit. Private Party tried to hit Gin and Juice, but Kenny caught Cassidy with the V-Trigger knee, and then they both hit the last call combo on Cassidy and got the win. So it was kind of a sloppy, clunky match for me. I was not a fan of it and I was just kind of like let's move on to the next one which really wasn't better although they're probably listening somebody in the back 
one of the bookers is finally listening to all of us, which is the way they're presenting Lance Archer, kind of a joke. They've relegated him basically to mid-card heel now. He needed a match to reestablish himself as a tough guy heel. And seeing him beat up Joey Janela probably did him a lot of good to reclaim some of his monster heel status. The match was an extended squash, and Joey Janela did get some really good offense in. Janela did actually have a really good super kick. Sunny Kiss ended up getting involved too, hitting a Phoenix Splash from the top rope. 450 Splash, whatever you want to call it. Archer had most of the offense. Jake got involved, but it backfired on Archer. But in the end, Archer got the victory. I think Archer needed that. He needed somebody who would be able to work and take a beating. And all the callbacks, there was Joey Janela went over the railing into a table. The bar wrestling stuff that Joey Janela does, all the gimmicky stuff like going through things and chairs and whatnot, there was prevalent in the match. And I like the fact that Sonny Kiss is helping. I like the combination. I mean, if Joey Janela and Sonny Kiss formed a tag team and did that for a while and fought like Private Party and Proud and Powerful and a bunch of other teams, I'd be okay with that. But you guys know about the show, I'm not a huge fan of Janela. I never really have been. I just don't get him. But he looks like literally somebody who just walked off the street, started wrestling. Janela did what he needed to do, which was put the Murder Hawk over. So, and for the Murder Hawk, he may have gained a little bit of cachet, having to take on essentially two guys. He did take on a, two finishing moves, and still survived to get the win. So, maybe Lance Archer's back. Who knows? Time will tell. We got a clip of Darby Allen practicing coffin drops at Travis Pastrana's ranch. I thought that was really funny. It's kind of weird and sad to see all of these extreme sports heroes looking kind of old and wrecked. It wasn't fun looking at Tony Hawk as a middle-aged skateboarder, nor was it that great seeing it was. As a matter of fact, when I first looked at it, I didn't think it was him until I had to do a double take and hear him talk, which we go with Darby Allen. The last thing he said was calling out Brian Cage, telling me he didn't forget and that he was the one who put Darby Allen out. So speaking of Brian Cage, I think at this point Taz is just trolling us. All the critics, including Bubba, because if you were with us last week, we talked about Bubba Ray buried Taz on Busted Open Radio with good reason. Basically saying he was putting himself over, not Brian Cage over. Well, Cage is obviously out this week with his shirt off. So I don't know. Is it taped? Is it live? I don't know. All I know is Brian Cage didn't have a shirt on this time. And Taz came out to... Actually, Brian Cage came out. And he was the one to kind of introduce the FTW belt. So the FTW belt is back. Full effect. It's orange. It's black. It's gold. And now... Brian Cage is the newly resurrected FTW champion. Are they going to continue this? Is the FTW championship going to be a part of AEW now? Is it going to morph into kind of like their version of the hardcore championship? I don't know. Remains to be seen. Although we do know that Brian Cage will be bringing the FTW championship belt with him next week as he faces John Moxley for the AEW heavyweight belt at Fight for the Fallen. Moxley was supposed to be there this week, but of course, as you know, famously, he contracted COVID and he's asymptomatic, but he's had to self-quarantine for four 
15 days, and now he's back, and he's going to be fighting on Wednesday. So it'll be fun to see John Moxley back. It'll be in this match. Who knows if they're going to hotshot Brian Cage or not. Uh, they gave him a belt, so maybe not. We will see. But, of course, Taz continuing to put himself over with the belt that he created. Talking about it's his blood, sweat, and tears. And it's something that he did because they didn't respect him. So he came up with it himself. And because the fans of AEW and the powers of AEW don't respect Brian Cage, that's why Taz gave him the belt. The only thing that Brian Cage doesn't have is the ability to speak like Taz. And once we start transferring people's neurons through Neuralink, Taz will be able to actually cut the promo for Brian Cage using Brian Cage's voice. So until that day happens, it's still the thing and the managers are abound. But I'm gonna fast forward a little bit because speaking of managers, so there's a two-on-one handicap match between Nyla Rose and uh, two female wrestlers that they're really high on, Kenzie Page and Kylan King. Kylan King was the bigger and seemingly stronger of the two, but it didn't matter because it was a squash match. Nyla Rose beat up Kenzie Page for a while, threw her out of the ring, and then she gave the tag to Kaylin, who looked like she didn't want to be there, obviously. And then Nyla Rose beats her up, too, for the win. But the important thing was Nyla Rose, at the end of her match, cutting the promo about how she notices that everybody else who's successful in AEW either as a coach or a manager. And even the new guy, she said, has a manager. But guess who doesn't have a manager? Me. And she notices that she's not up at the same level as Sheeta and all of them now that she's lost. And she needs something that's going to put her over the edge. And it just so happens to be a manager. Now, she didn't reveal who the manager was. She just knows that next week she will reveal who her manager is. I'm afraid it's going to be Medusa because Medusa was very uh, chummy with a lot of NWA and AEW wrestlers, friends with Shivani and JR. So I'm afraid they might bring Medusa in to be her manager. Medusa, even though she can't technically go much in the ring anymore, you don't know what she's going to say. or You kind of have to give Medusa a script, which is sad enough. So if it's not Medusa, I wonder who it is. Let's go backward a little bit. Speaking of female wrestlers, Big Swole was met outside the arena with restraining order. She was not allowed to enter the building because of her assault on Dr. Britt Baker, towing her, her ride away, putting her in harm's way. Big Swole was like, okay, I got you. You're right, and stormed back. We'll get back to that later. Coming backwards, the eight-man tag put a lot of people together that I don't know why they're together, but they put them together. Uh, this was kind of a culmination of some of the messes that were happening the last couple of weeks ever since FTR debuted in AEW. And this match was Butcher and the Blade and the Lucha Brothers versus the Young Bucks and FTR. It wasn't that bad of a match. It wasn't so much memorable again. It, just four guys kind of perpetuating storylines against each other. The Lucha Brothers, whose star has cooled immensely at this point. They're almost an afterthought now, but they started off and they really got an FTR's face. And I would like to see 
them go at it team for team. There were some really frequent tags between the Young Bucks and FTR. So if they're healing an eventual split between FTR and the Young Bucks or an eventual build to a storyline between those two guys, they're doing a really good job of simmering it back down a little bit. So the match went back and forth. As far as the heel defense, so to speak, Butcher and the Blade were in for a lot of the tag teams beating up on them. And they ended up, they ended up though, getting the victory at the end. So that was a weird thing that usually doesn't happen. So Blade hit Nick Jackson with the pump kick, who walked right into the Butcher for their double team move. Nick was caught onto uh, the Blade's knee by uh, the Butcher. But then Phoenix tagged in. He got Nick Jackson on the top rope until Nick came by and used a hurricanrana on Felix. It was weird. There was a lot of tag tandem wrestling with the opposites. So Wheeler and Jackson were teaming up for a while, and then Dax and Matt were teaming up for a while to put in some offense. The announcers did a really nice job of putting it over, so it made you feel like like it was a big match. Matt came in, a house of fire kind of started really taking over. Set up, kind of gone for the more bang for your buck, but Phoenix did the tightrope walk, took a nick out, and... Pentagon landed a Canadian destroyer onto the floor. It was pretty badass. The last few minutes of the match were just so great. They were really athletic. But now the drama they built is coming to a head. Matt tried to super kick Pentagon, but Pentagon ducked and he smacked Harwood with it. Matt, in a moment of shock and disgust at what he did, forgot where he was. And the Lucha Brothers grabbed Matt Jackson and put him in the Phoenix or Pentagon Driver. I forgot what they called it. I know, I think Shivani called the move. I forget what it's called. It had a cool sounding name, but they put it on Matt Jackson for the win. So it was kind of that tease of the mistake and Dax Harwood ate a super kick. But at the end of the match, they seemed to shake hands and acknowledge that it wasn't their fault. And... The Butcher and the Blade and the Lucha Brothers ended up getting the victory and walking away. We got a backstage vignette with Boom Boom Colt Cabana, or Cult Cabana, as people are trying to asperge him with, if that's even a word. And Mr. Brody Lee came to check on him again, perpetuating one of the worst long extended ribs. This whole Dark Order rib is just going to keep getting terrible and terrible and terrible, I feel like. And it's just, it's going to turn at some point. It's actually going to be good. It's going to be around so long and it's bad that it's going to be. Cole Cabana replied with, with, you got it, Mr. Brody. So he's speaking to Brody Lee as if he is part of the cult. So I guess Cult Cabana is part of the cult, but not really. In the same way that Daniel Bryan was part of the Wyatt family, I assume. It was a three-on-three match between Brody Lee, Stu Grayson, and Cult Cabana. Versus Ocala Uncensored. Haven't seen Scorpio Sky in a while. That was really fun. Because they've already kind of ruined the Dark Order type deal. I'm either here or there about it. It's just another faction of guys who used to be in WWE or never got a shot in WWE. And they're together. And kind of proving that WWE doesn't need them and they're not as good 
as they thought they were. Scorpio Sky shows his amazing intelli uh, intelligence. Yes, intelligence, but also his amazing athleticism again. Even, I think JR even put him over again as pound for pound being the best athlete in AEW and got no arguments there. Cole Tabana when he's working heel. Again, this is kind of like Candice Lorraine. It's not really that believable, but because he's on the side of the bad guys, he's by proxy a bad guy. Maybe he's found his place, maybe he hasn't. Christopher Daniels is awesome. Kazarian's awesome. They're doing their thing. So Christopher Daniels was tangled up with Colt, and Brody Lee blindsides him, hits him with the lariat. They order Colt to get back in the ring, and Colt pinned Christopher Daniels for the Dark Order. So even though Colt is still part of the Dark Order, he's still reluctantly not wanting to be part of the Dark Order. He knows that he and Christopher Daniels have been friends from way back. He and Frankie Kazarian are friends from way back. So he didn't necessarily want to rely on the heel tactic in order to win the match, but he did. And actually, it was a nice way to kind of distance Colt from not using specific heel tactics in order to win the match. But Colt got the win anyway. So there we go. Who knows if Colt Cabana will continue or if he'll eventually turn on Mr. Brody Lee. We cut away real quick to see Big Swole sneaking in to the arena wearing our AEW mask. So nobody knew who it was until it was too late, prompting an altercation with Reba, AKA Rebel. Swole grabs a restraining order, throws it at Rebel, who reacted by flailing her arms, smacking Dr. Britt Baker in the nose. And now poor Dr. Britt Baker, after being injured, after still trying to carry the women's division while being injured, now has a broken nose and she had to go in for surgery to fix it. The way that Dr. Britt Baker is getting disrespected in AEW is, is, is ridiculous, it's ludicrous, and I will no longer stand for it. So I hope Big Swole gets what's coming to her when Dr. Britt Baker is officially cleared to wrestle. The match that I knew was going to surprise me and was going to surprise a lot of people was the last match, which was the main event, which was Freshly Squeezed Orange Cassidy versus Le Champion, Chris Jericho, in a grudge match. Orange Cassidy was accompanied by Best Friends and Chris Jericho was accompanied by Proud and Powerful. I know, again, people don't like Orange Cassidy. He's an acquired taste, like the same way that I'm not a fan of Joey Janela. But I actually do like Orange Cassidy, and the thing is about Orange Cassidy is he's playing the gimmick perfectly, which is there is a very good wrestler underneath a topical, trendy gimmick. So Orange Cassidy, the disaffected millennial or ex-millennial or generation, whatever you want to I don't even care about that much stuff. All I know is, is that he's a young person who's into what the young people are into, and he does his gimmick probably better than anybody else. He, already, he knows who he is, and he does it well. The whole putting his hands in his pockets. The dude was out for revenge against Le Champion, yet he still was holding to his gimmick, wearing himself as a T-shirt, hands in his pockets. But as you watched throughout the match he is a really highly skilled professional wrestler uh, to be able to do some of that stuff with his hands in his pockets that most wrestlers can't do with their arms fully capable of working is amazing is beyond me jericho brought floyd with him just as a backup orange cassidy put his hands in his pants or leaves tried to and took jericho down with a drop kick see because that's the other thing 
that they've worked on, and I'm sure they've done before. I'm sure he's done it before in other federations. Is you know the gimmick is hands in the pants is disaffected, but that's only to lull you to sleep because psychologically Orange Cassidy's going to get the advantage by doing the drop kick, which he did that a couple of times in the match. There were a couple of times where he lulled Chris Jericho to sleep. He scared Chris Jericho off, and Jericho took a powder. Jericho comes back. He gets some offense in on Jericho, but Jericho was able to reverse a swinging DDT to put the Lion Tamer, Moons, uh, whatever you call it. Aubrey Edwards got involved, which I was really happy with. Jericho started working Orange's back, you know, to set him up for the Lion Tamer again later on in the match. Uh, Orange Cassidy was able to weasel out of it and get out of it. Orange tried to orange up with a Superman pond. He did a lot of his other athletic things like avoiding Jericho with rolls and dives. He dove to get Jericho outside a couple of times. It was uh, really good. Even though the best friends and Proud and Powerful were allowed to be out in the ring, Cassidy requested that the friends really not get involved. But, you know, they kind of did anyway because they were kind of props for... Cassidy flopping to the outside. Jericho again doing heel things throughout the break, testing Cassidy with the ring psychology. There was one point where Jericho even tried to call back to the stitches that Orange Cassidy got. Orange started to orange up and fought back. At one point, Orange Cassidy even pulled the non-violence party. That's what I'm calling it. The not-too-violent party where he started kicking Jericho. But... As you know, in the past, Cassidy would follow it up with like a soft-hearted headbutt or whatever, still keeping his hands in his pants. But this time, he actually followed it up with a super kick, which rocked Jericho. And I thought that was brilliant because, again, part of the gimmick is, is that he's set up where he's disaffected and disinterested in pro wrestling. So he lulls people to sleep when he needs to explode and do something athletic. It looks pretty good. So I think there's more to the Orange Cassidy's gimmick than people are giving him credit. By the end of the match, Jericho goes for the line salt. Cassidy moves. Orange puts uh, Jericho in the Michinoku driver. Almost won. Cassidy fires back. He connects with a stun dog millionaire. Swingy DDT. Tried Superman punch three times. The first time wasn't successful. The second time was... And the third time, Cassidy was really feeling like he could put him away. But Jericho spun out of it and caught him with the juice effect elbow and got the win. Probably the best match of the night in Fight Fest. All the other matches, to me, just kind of moved things along. The last, the match with the eight-man tag didn't get good until the last five minutes. The Joey Janela extended squash against the Murder Hawk did what it did. The tag championship match in the beginning was a really underwhelming. So if we're going to put this to bed, if we're going to put this Wednesday Night War summer edition between the Great American Bash and AEW to bed. I know last week, Fighter Fest won for night one. Night two, the Great American Bash won. I'm calling it. However, I'm going to say that because of a split decision, since Great American Bash didn't do enough to put it over the top for me, I'm still going to declare overall, even though Fight Fest 2 had some underwhelming matches, I'm going to say that AEW critically still won the night. Despite Keith Lee becoming double champ, I don't necessarily think NXT Great American Bench was that much better than Fight Fest 2. 
I'm giving it to AEW. I think they won nights one and two, but very barely on a split decision. Thanks for joining me today. If you want to check me out, you can check me out on Facebook at Kill and Face Podcast. Get notified of all of our awesome podcasts on the Heel Turn Wrestling Network by going to Heel Turn HT Wrestling 316 on our social media on Facebook and on Twitter, HT Wrestling 316. So check out the family on Heel Turn Wrestling at HT Wrestling 316 on all our social media. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the podcast. We will check out Fight for the Fallen next week. We may even check out some other wrestling promotions. Not necessarily ones that you would have known. Maybe some independent international promotions coming up on the radar of the Heel and Face podcast. We'll see. But you're just going to have to join us next week. You're going to have to tune in. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thanks for joining me. I'm Steve Castellanovo, the host of the Heel and Face podcast on Heel Turn Wrestling. And as always, peace.